Hello, and welcome to Double Exposure, a conversation podcast about comparing and contrasting cinema, old and new, viewing two films through the same lens. I am your host and fellow movie watcher, Bear Boswell. At this point, you realize that I'm an absolute lunatic for movies, which is why I made this podcast so I can chat about them until I lose my voice. This week on Double Exposure, we work our way through the trenches to two incredibly outstanding World War I-era films, including the 2019 Oscar-winning and photographically iconic journey that is 1917 in the harrowing and brutally honest take on corrupt war generals, Paths of Glory, a 1957 film directed by the iconic Stanley Kubrick. This week, I bring in a special guest who has a lot of knowledge of World War I history and also has a lot of knowledge about me because he is my brother. So, Webb Scott Boswell, thank you for coming in, you absolute sweetheart. Oh. I love you. How are you? Love you too, man. Well, thanks for coming into this podcast. I'm super glad you're here. You and I have done this before. Uh, like we've talked about, we've had uh, you know loosely, 20 yeah. years of of banter, 20 years of watching movies together, watching Pixar movies, basically Pixar movies in the car. You know, going up on ski trips and that big. How many UConn times XL. have we watched Cars? Oh my gosh. Would you say that's like a pinnacle film for our childhood? I think that's a pinnacle film. I think A Bug's Life is a pinnacle film. Monsters, Tarz- Inc. Tarzan. Tarzan. You love I think that's Tarzan. the first movie I ever saw. Was Tarzan. Was Tarzan? I think I was like one. Mom and Dad snuck me into the movie theater. We were really big on um, the Barbie films, too, I remember. <laughs> we were forced to watch Maybe them. out of our, yeah, not of our liking, but our little sister's liking. That claymation is iconic. Oh, absolutely <laughs> iconic. So we've had a history of... You know, enjoying films together, our kino brains combined <laughs> at such a young age with our Barbie films, and now we're here talking about two sick films, really good films. Really, might good I films. add, 1917 and Pads of Glory, which are both World War One movies. Which is our topic of this podcast is World War One films or World War One. Within cinema, basically, is what it is. And that's an interesting topic just because of how America treats World War One differently and Europe treats World War One, World, World War One differently. We're going to have two different views, basically, on these movies. Yeah, you know? I, absolutely. And I think it could go different ways, too, because when people think World War One film, they also might think, like, documentaries. Yeah. Um, and, like, one thing that I obviously thought about during these films was the documentary... Oh, you know, they, they shall not grow. grow old. That, which, by the way, that was an amazing, amazing. documentary. Please watch that by the amazing um, Peter, Peter Jackson. Jackson. Really yeah. good. He made a few movies. Yeah, I don't know who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I, when people think that, they think documentaries. But these are narrative, biographical, in a way, films of a real war with real uh, emotions that actually happened. Maybe not specific to the exact story, but They're certainly realistic in the situation, I'd say. Definitely. So how many times have you seen these films? So I've only seen both of them once. I honestly intend to go back and watch both of them again because they were that good. But this is my first time watching each of them. What about you? Uh, This was my second time watching 1917. So the first time I watched 1917 was with my movie group of 15 lovely men and women all over the age of 70. 50-year age difference between me and them. And the second time I watched it was with my girlfriend uh, just a few days ago. And then Paths of Glory two times, one by myself and one with you. Yeah, baby. So pretty fre- both very fresh on my very mind Very right fresh. Now. I mean, Paths of, Paths of Glory was a few days ago. 
Oh my so. gosh. And yeah, it was incredible to show you that movie because man, what a hard hitting, just terribly sad, but also very important film for that whole anti-war genre. That's true. Cult- culturally, we'll get into that later, but that's a, it is very important culturally after that and influenced a lot of war movies, I feel like, after that. Right. And with it, too, like 1917 kind of compared to it, it's both so different. Oh, couldn't, unbelievably Couldn't different. watch two more different movies, but both after watching, I would say watching 1917, watching Pads of Glory, 1917, then Pads of Glory, big old sandwich right there. It was like watching the inspiration between the two and the influences um, was really, really cool to see. A lot of inspiration, I think, Sam Mendes maybe took from Kubrick. Oh, I would agree with that. I, I think it's interesting, too. These are two completely different films that both get the flavor of World War I on, this, on the spot, yep. which kind of shows you how broad of a topic this is. And yeah, and to like to kind of praise the directors too, it shows how personal they wanted to go with it. Yeah, Sam Mendes having a uh, grandfather, I believe, who was in World War One, either maybe great grandfather, a relative that he heard stories from, and he made a personal film about it. Kubrick was just a twenty-five-year-old, just genius who just felt deeply about this certain story, this book called Paths of Glory, about these men that were wrongly accused of a war crime, and just felt passionate about it, wanted to share that. Well, not to mention, too, both films are just these directors trying to fish out these stories and give them to people, especially these very little-known stories. Kubrick's being this little-known French story and then Sam Mendes serving up the story to Americans who know nothing about the Great War. Yes, it, it's really cool, the resurgence of World War One in the past few years. I think 1917 did a, um, an amazing job introducing that as like a fictional genre for people because a lot of it you know we've got the classic world war ii movies yeah but no world war one no, none it's none fi- no non-fictional lots of documentaries it's important to just put it in a little bit too starting with the video game battlefield one and then with the continuation as 1917 it's interesting to see the genre of world war one media in general just open up definitely so speaking of uh world war one <laughs> 1917 the great year We'll jump in with that. That was film. a horrible year. <laughs> the great year of 1917. So 1917 was uh, basically it was, a, it was fire. It is was, what it was. Well, yeah, it was fire. It was absolutely heat. What a damn good movie. Still such a very popular movie right now. One of the most popular films of 2019. Wait, was it really? It was. I didn't. Well, I know a, it won a, like an Oscar or two, right? It won three Oscars. It won the Oscar for cinematography. Well deserved. Which I would agree, yes. Well deserved. I could do an entire podcast about the cinematography. Cinematography. Crunch, Um, Roger Deakins is responsible for, again, some of the greatest shots in cinema. Like, what what movies is he responsible for? Oh, I could say it right off the top of my head. Blade Runner 2049, Skyfall, the James Bond film. No Country for Old Men. He has worked with Denis Villeneuve who is an incredible sci-fi. Yeah, Dune's coming out, yeah. Dune is coming out, finally. Unfortunately, uh, just on HBO Max, but we can talk about that some other time. Um, he, But Denis Villeneuve, the Coen brothers, oh. and Sam Mendes, as who we were talking That's about now. That's a the weird trio. Huge. He did Big Lebowski, A Serious Man, True Grit. Uh, I mean, I, I can go on and on about all these films that he's done. Um, 
like a, a lot of the early Coen Brothers stuff. So Roger Deakins, highly decorated. He's going into this film with this mindset of we're going to make this a uh, one shot film. And that's I was about to bring that up. That's really important. That's part of what makes this film so technically impressive is it is seamless. There are two shots in the film and it's seamless. It, is, seam- it is pretty much seamless. There's the classic tricks and watching it, I, you can see the tricks, you know, maybe they'll go behind a boulder or something or like, you appreciate the trick when you see it. It's not intrusive. Oh, not at all. Yeah. I think that they do an incredible job and a lot of people think it's a one shot movie. For the general audience to think that and know that and believe that. You did a good job. You did a damn good job. You did beyond a good job. Like you are exceeding greatly because I can sit over here with my critical brain and be like, well, that boulder is sipping my wine. Yeah, with my popped (laughs) collar. Like, no, I can, like, come on. It's incredible. It's spectacular. And they do such a good job of fitting to the wonderful set that they made around World War I. Oh, that set was and, flawless. And Absolutely amazing. It. What did you think about the props and their, like, you know, how did they hold up as far as, like, real-time World War One props? So this, okay, so that we're going to kind of transition into talking about bits of the movie with this. One of the first things that stood out to me about the movie was what, Blake and Schofield are walking down the trench, and they're, like, taking that order, and they don't really know what's going on. Actually, they're about to receive that order. And you see right as they're walking down the trench up to the front lines, some a few soldiers pass in front of them carrying like random boxes and what looks like a big gun. And to the average person, you're like, okay, I don't know what that means. To the World War One enthusiast, they walk by and you see a Lewis gun over their shoulders. And you're like, oh my God, they're going for a push. They're going for a push. And then five seconds later, they say, are they going for a push? And that level of detail is just so impressive in there. I mean... Sure, you can get the right guns, you can get the right props, get the right grenades, the right uniforms, but knowing how to use those props in that context was what was really impressive about the movie, I thought. Oh, yeah. I, I So a push is basically just like a like a storming, basically. It's just like a, like a, a warfare I, push. Yeah, I sh- oh, so I should, I should say each side is in trenches, just hundreds of miles long, just entrenched in these positions, staying there for weeks, months at a time. And every once in a while, somebody will grow a pair of balls and will try and push and go over what is called no man's land, which is absolutely desolate, barren, full of essentially dead people and oh, animals and, and was wiry. Yeah, and was in the movie. Oh we'll get to gosh. that in a little bit. Oh, my gosh. Um, and essentially, when you see people running up with those machine guns, they are getting ready to jump over the trench and try and push into the enemy's trench mm-hmm. and try and take a position. And what is interesting is World War I introduced so many interesting tactics. Mm-hmm. It was the first large-scale war ever, really large-scale, not first, but large-scale war to include combined arms. These armies were using tactics, using support machine guns and stuff for the first time. So it's interesting to see them actually incorporate that into the movie, people bringing up the machine guns to the trench in order to support people advancing on the trench. Right. Those little details were very greatly appreciated. The scene where they had... Um, when they were doing it, they themselves did a push because yeah. they had to push through um, in order to deliver this message. So basically the film is they have to deliver a message to a general telling that general to stop um, an attack because they're completely outnumbered by Germans. Yes. So it's these two friends and the one friend Blake is asked to be the navigator and he's 
asked to choose someone. So he, he doesn't really even choose Schofield. He's just like, come on, bitch. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're coming, bro. Like, we've been hanging. We've been straight we've hanging. We've been hanging. We've been hanging. We've been You'll be sad if I die up. anyways. We've been eating, you know, we've been eating this nasty bread and with suffering. Ham in these it, yeah. yeah. Suffering in these trenches. You're coming with. And Schofield's like, what? why did you take me? He's so mad. But that scene, when they push, they make it through the the German trenches, all this stuff, and they turn up on the other side of the German trenches, and there's all of the um, shells. There's Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. That, that 10 minutes of cinema is just packed full of details. Like, the way they captured how disgusting No Man's Land was. Oh, all gosh. the dead horses, rotting corpses, people hanging on barbed wire. At, at one point, he scratch, Schofield scratches his oh. hand on a barbed wire. This movie's... So, totally are by the way which i'm glad yeah I'm glad it was oh R. yeah it has to be but he scratches his hand on barbed wire like it, not even scratch like punctures like puncture like, like rip, grabs it grabs slips oh and yeah rips through his hand comes back to falls his hand goes straight into the head of a german soldier's oh, carcass basically and you're like he's screwed that's yeah. super infected yeah like he is totally like you're like oh my gosh everything this is in the first like 10 minutes, like yeah. three minutes of them pushing. Is is somebody already has a mortal gash on their hand and it's infected. That hurt me. And it, it's, oh yeah. Um, my wife and I were watching it and instantly she said, oh, I'm not going to like this. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh But, God. but yeah. also it's, inter- it's good because the movie doesn't dwell on it. You know, it's interesting because you know, as the watcher, his hand is screwed up and you're paying attention to his hand, yes. but he knows that he can't pay attention to his hand as he continues through the movie. So you're conscious of it and he's probably conscious of it, but he ignores it. It's, it's, it's really well done from that perspective. Because they're on a time crunch. They have things to do. And you are like, no, come on, dude. Like you got to worry about your hand. But he's like, no, we have to keep going. Like you're kind of in that position of like, you kind of feel like the third person, like you're going along. Yes. With them. Yes. And it, it's it's interesting because then as the as the watcher, you're like, wrap up your hand, wrap up your hand. Yes. And then when he finally does, he's doing it while walking, while doing something else. Yep. It really drives home the point of how important what they're doing is to him. Right. What's interesting, too, about them being in no man's land is the presumption about no man's land is you get in there and you're instantly shot by machine gun fire. And so the fact that they get into no man's land and survive 30 seconds, the film does a good job at making it apparent that, oh, my God, they survived. They're in the, they're in the trenches. The Germans aren't there. Yeah, they're in no man's land. The Germans aren't there. That means they're going to make it to the other side. But what's funny, if you don't mind me interrupting, is yeah. that the Germans knew they were coming. Exactly. Which is like I thought was so interesting, like the tactical sneakiness of it, where they're going through, you know, the crazy scene where – they find that rat and they're complimenting Ooh. the rats. They're like, even the rats are huge. Like, because they live the, like you told me, you were like, the German trenches were way nicer. I was about to say, let's backpedal a bit. The German trenches, the Germans spent so much more money and time on these trenches. The British trench is built using like shiplap and all these like planks and random sticks and stuff. And you go over to the German side and it's all nice, clean concrete. Yeah, they have bunk so nice. beds. They have like rations, whereas the British are sleeping on the ground in these little foxholes dug out. And so the contrast is just amazing from crappy trench to absolute hellhole of a wasteland, no man's land to what feels like the Ritz to them is a really cool transition. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's really cool to see, yeah, like how they react to the German trenches and oh, how they're, they're pissed. They're just so mad and so frustrated. And there's all these, you know, like cans of food. Like they had, they didn't leave them much, but they left them surprises because they knew they were coming. Yes, and they that's didn't an know how many plot. were coming. Yeah. And so as you're going throughout the movie, they, you know, every it's just like they're just gone. They've done this. They've done this, and then it's. I remember just like little things just said, it was like, they know we're here. Like they know that we were going to follow suit. They tripwired the bunkers and the rat trip uh, falls into the tripwire and just blows them to hell. Yeah. And Blake ends up saving Schofield's life and they make it out. And where we- Although Blake also caused that explosion. He did. You know, if they would have just scooted on through, Oh man, Blake the is there was, I know, Blake is a so character that things. you love to hate. <laughs> yes, you love to hate. You, you, you love. I love him though because he's like the co- comedic relief. No, in but a, he's a bitch. Relief. Yeah, but he's so funny and kind of chubby and like <laughs> like a bit of like a teddy bear. Oh, <laughs> I know he's cute, dude. He's like he's like he's such a cute character, honestly, and like a le- legitimate like detail of his character. He is very cute. Lovable, likable. It's a good archetype of character. To right, have in that he's movie. determined. He knows his role within his duty, which is he is the navigator. He knows his skills around a map. They select him because they know he knows a map well. But he's like making jokes and talking about all this stuff and like saying like, "Oh, and he's noble," you know. He is the one that's saying, "Why would you get rid of your medals to Schofield?" Because mm-hmm. Schofield's like, "F medals. Who cares? It's I just mean, a piece of tin." And he's like. You send that home to your mother, you know. And he's like, "What'd you trade it for?" And he's like, "Wine." I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm glad they killed him off when they did. Mm. Oh, that, I'm glad that they hurts did. me. Did, you said that too early. I wasn't ready to talk about that yet. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, but I had to. And no, now you you're can. gonna bleed for the rest of the damn episode. No, okay you can. They just they get him good. What do you think about like that whole scene? With the plane. Oh, do we want to do that or do we want to... Talk to me about... Because I, I, here's the thing. Watching it, I know World War One. I, I know it was a war. I know it was the first one. What what does the plane mean? What does the, the guns mean? Uh, you, talk to me a little bit about that scene where the plane comes down. There's a dogfight, right? Yeah. And the plane comes down, crashes into the barn. The guy comes out on fire. They save him, but he stabs Blake. Blake dies. As far as just like from like a World War One uh, buff yeah. kind of perspective, what in there is historically correct? So we can okay. In order to unpack that, you have to kind of know the identity of the nations that are fighting in this war. The British are very noble, but also idiots, and have somehow the best rifle in the entire war, and they made it by accident. Whereas the Germans are very meticulous seeing the identity of these two cultures, it's interesting. So Blake and Schofield come across that farm, and it's interesting because just with this scene as a historian, you can kind of see right away, oh, this is they're in one of the parts of France that has not been absolutely devastated by the war. Mm. You know, there are still structures standing. This is a fresh zone for the war, basically. Mm-hmm. So fresh that... I mean, Schofield, the little details, like Schofield finds that milk in that bucket oh, and puts it in that there. That was such a tender moment. It was that the whole, I think that whole scene, because it really drives home the fact that people used to live here and people were actually here pretty recently because that milk still isn't rancid. Um, 
And that is very, it's interesting. This whole scene is kind of a commentary on human nature because all of a sudden you see that dog fight up in the air. You've got two planes on one and it, or you're seeing that and you're like, oh, the, the, the British are going to win because they have mm-hmm. two planes. But the Germans had the best air force in the whole army. Absolutely. I don't really know how they trained their pilots, but I know they were ruthless. Those pilots were cold blooded. They did something some sort of training to them. And those guys hated everybody and everything. I mean, there wow. were, uh, the red Baron is, you know, I mean, there's a pizza named after the red Baron, yes. but the red Baron, I can't remember his name. Um, I don't remember how many he kills he had, but he had an ungodly amount of registered confirmed kills in an aircraft at a time where aircraft were not wow. good. And so the German air force was super strict. So, so to see that, Pilot go down. Interesting already. He goes down. And then to cut to something different, um, watching, we watched uh, They Shall Not Grow Old together. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to realize that both sides were all basically these young little kids, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And once they would come in contact with the other side, oh, they're just guys like us. And they'd get along. And it's interesting because... Blake is like, oh, he's just another person. When the when the German plane crashes down, tries to get him out, tries to take care Schofield of him. Because Schofield is hesitant. He, oh, yeah. He's saying, like, he's like, no, no, no. He's just like, we have to help him because the dude is on fire. Yeah. It's just like, because Blake is such a good person. And then and that just goes God. to show, like, the difference between the German ground troops and how cold-blooded, hardcore these Damn. German pilots Cut were. That the, yeah, yeah, the German pilot didn't want to be saved. He wanted to kill somebody bloodthirsty it's and that ends up doing in blake which i think happened at the perfect time he, we had half the film with this lovable young gullible character boom cut him off leave us the dry withered old man who's not actually that old but he's seen more action than blake so 1917 does a really great job in the first half of the film at nailing the world war one history all the little details so going into the second half of the film, as we take more of an emotional um, turn into it, we have Schofield ending up in the town of Acoust. Yeah, Acoust. Acoust. Um, and running into a mother and her newborn baby. Actually, it wasn't even her newborn baby. It was a random girl who picked up some random baby and is oh, raising really? it as her own. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's dark. That's a subtle cut. Con- yeah. It's very dark. I... And it's a heartfelt moment because she, he's like, I have all this food for you. And he's giving her all this food. And it's just like, oh, nice. Yeah, he's such a good guy. He's literally giving all this food for this journey. Like, they, like he had a fat pack of artillery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was good to go. And But it, she's like, I can't give him any of this. He needs milk. And when she says milk, you're like, oh, my. It's it's really cool. He has milk. That milk he did not. He need has that milk. milk. He has milk. He literally took the milk as a luxury from the cow, and exactly. he's giving it to her. And I love that. He's giving up a luxury. He could have just chugged that milk in front of her. I love that scene. Yes. Do you love that scene? Okay. So, <laughs> thank you for asking. Um, the whole the first half of the movie. Oh my god, amazing accuracy. Second half of the movie is really good. From a emotional viewer standpoint, the humanity of the war, awesome. From a historical perspective, I fell asleep. I didn't actually fall asleep, but 
it, it, it just kind of drags on and you're like, this would not have happened. Your historical big brain fell asleep. Y- y- yeah. yeah, I'm sitting on my own brain playing chess. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, it, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't bad, but as a normal person, it would have been, it was great. As somebody who appreciates that stuff, it was all right. Yeah. Just because like, I'm sure that happened once or twice in the war, but why are you showing me this very narrow, very niche thing where that would happen? No, I want to see what would have realistically happened. But that's being nitpicky and being very specific about that. Right, um, because every single person going into the film doesn't have the knowledge like you do of World War exactly. I. Exactly. Which is and which is honestly normal because it's a lot more people know about World War II than they do World War One. Yeah. Be- I think, one, because of the commercial accessibility with it, with movies being made, and also the time frame, too. Also, because Americans of- don't care about World War One. No, they don't. Which they is, really don't. If you're an American, you're listening to this, go research it right now. It's much bigger than you realize. Right. So after all those scenes, then we come to the point where he's made it. He finds the troops. Um, in the forest and walks through the forest into the trench. Oh, that's a that first off that forest scene is really good. Unbelievable forest scene with the male vocalists just singing to these broken, nervous men that think that they're about to go and uh, push. Basically, yeah. Holy they cow! Get back to the trench, or yeah, they all arrive back at the trench. Right. And Schofield, our character, he finds his way to Benedict Cumberbatch. I can't remember his character's name. The movie ties up so well in you arrive at this trench and you see, oh, this is brand new. They are digging into that fresh limestone. They just mm. did that a few days ago. Everything is dry. There's no mud or water at the bottom. Schofield has to basically deliver the news that the that Blake's brother to Blake's brother, he has to deliver the deliver the news that to Blake's brother that Blake has died, thus cementing the attrition of the war, essentially being like, this is the this is the cost of war, yeah. of tearing apart families, of losing loved ones. And you start to realize, they start to kind of get you, the war is cyclical. Mm-hmm. They push, they push, and they stay put for months on end. Yep. And that is really driven in when you get to Benedict Cumberbatch. Schofield delivers a letter. Benedict Cumberbatch is just pissed off and finally comes to terms that, all right, we have to call off the assault. We're sitting in this damn trench for another three weeks. And that's when it's just like, wow, that's exactly what happened at the beginning of the movie. They've been sitting there for weeks on end after trying to make a push. And that's when you realize, wow, this this war isn't about some big, great, amazing battle. This war is everyday life. Yep. And it just sinks in like, whoa. The movie begins with our character Schofield sitting underneath a tree, sleeping, and it ends with him sitting underneath a tree, looking at a picture of his wife and kids about to fall asleep. Yeah. All right, we covered 1917. We got through it. We got over the, you know, emotions of it. Now... We're going to cry some more. It's time for Paths of Glory, baby. I, I would say we're going to feel even more emotion than 1917 with this film. A different kind of emotion. A different kind, and I will still stand behind more. I, I personally felt like this was more emotional than 1917, just from what we'll talk about, the humanity perspective, the betrayal, the lying, 
um, drunkenness, you know, just all of these vices coming in the way. And this film is all of that. And it is incredible. In- incredible film. There, well, there are a few things going into that. I mean, it is more relatable to the average human being. Yeah. You know, the average human being cannot relate to the soldier, but the average human being can relate to some of those weird court-like, court-martial problems. The higher-ups, we all have these images of what all these army generals are doing. We can kind of imagine that a little easier, you know. And not to mention, too, we're moving from Sam Mendes, who is... You know, he, he's a known director that people enjoy to Kubrick. This is the big boy director. Yeah, you know? and this is the beginning of his big boy director's like journey. It's like movie? It's like, I believe this is his, because he made a couple, like, really just corny, like, war propaganda kind of films in the early 50s. And then he made The Killing yes, in yeah. uh, the early, 55, I believe, or 56. And then this was, like, his big commercial breakout where he got a big budget mgm uh was the backing production company it's crazy that mgm let him do this well yeah it really is and they kind of didn't really because they did not know that he was going to do that sad twist at the end yeah this film for the era it's important to remember is technologically impressive yes very much so for 1957 pads of glory exceeds what a lot of films um, do today. And it really sets... And it, honestly, just talking from a Stanley Kubrick perspective real quick before we dive into just the World War One stuff, it is, I think... I've This is only the second Kubrick film I've seen. This is my first, so... Yeah, it, that's right. Which is honestly pretty cool because you're starting at the beginning. That, and yeah, in a way, true. too, what you could do, unless you mess it up, you could watch them all chronologically. Oh, I've already point. screwed it up, but yeah. Yeah, whatever. Um, he sets a great standard, a high bar. A really high a really bar. really high bar, and it is still recognized and still on the top films of IMDb, top films of Letterboxd, like top 20 at least as far as ratings go. Like this movie is aged phenomenally well, and as the months go on, it does. Well, I, I want to name off a few things that are attached to this movie that work really well. First off, Kirk Douglas slam dunk in this movie. Slam dunk. Wow. And like, R.I.P. He literally died like a, I think around a, about a year ago. 2019. Yeah. Two, 2020. Yeah. Early 2020 is when he passed away. He was 104 years old, and so he was in his 30s or, or 40s in this movie. And man, is he good. It's a good performance. Man, um, is he good. It, as opposed to 1917, where we get the gritty, the war, the people in the trenches actually doing the deeds, mm-hmm. this movie elevates it. And we see at the beginning, we see we see some of the troops in the trench, but it quickly elevates to the squabbling and what was the basis of what World War One was, which is all these pompous generals throwing crap at each other and just trying to climb as high as they can and get as much, essentially, power and money. Yeah. So basically, after refusing to attack an enemy position, a general accuses the soldiers of cowardice, and their commanding officer must defend them. So Kirk Douglas is the commanding officer, and he's defending these four pretty much random dudes. Sorry, three. In the real story, there's four dudes. That's true. I'm thinking about that. Because this is based on a true story from a book called Paths of Glory after a real scenario within a, a... French uh, French army of French generals, these terrible generals. It's a scenario set up where 
there's a lot of blame happening and not a lot of context and a whole lot of historical accuracy, um, maybe some inaccuracies that we're seeing too. Like it's a very important movie for World War One because it's 1957, so it's only 40 years removed from the war as uh, 1917 is 100 years removed from the war. Yeah. So we're a little more relevant with the term. So like what are some things that we're seeing? So while we break down this movie, it's interesting to remember Sam Mendes is British. He already cares a lot more about the war than Kubrick does, Kubrick being American. Um, but what we get here is interesting because 100 years later, we know a lot more about the war. There's a lot more recorded history and a lot more archived work, whereas only 40 years after that war in 57, we there's only so much archival work they can look for. Mm-hmm. So there's some historical elements that I feel like you just skip over. I'm not looking too deep into what rifles they have, into what revolvers they have, which they actually did do right on, I will say. But that isn't as big of an importance here. Um, I feel like more of the importance in this movie, rather than the technical accuracy, is the accurate, the cultural accuracy. And I feel like they get that right on the head here. Right, right off the bat, we're looking at the French army instead of the British army. And earlier in the war, I think it's 1916, I believe. Yeah, 1916. Yep, that's right when bef- the, it is in the film, yeah. yeah. And essentially, the, the French army at this point is the Maginot Line, which was, a, impen- what was supposed to be an impenetrable line, has fallen. And the French are now trying to push back the Germans from just absolutely trampling through them and reaching the heart of France. Yep. And so France is desperate. And we see this desperation come through in these French generals just offering these ballsy tactical moves. Take this anthill. Take this absolutely fortified 100% to the gills hill that your troops will not make it. But because these guys are up here drinking wine all day and partying, they don't know any better. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it creates this really interesting divide. Ooh, that I even have to backpedal. This is another thing that is important. World War One is a transition from the colonial days, from the, the days of these massive empires, to what we see as modern day. And so you see the transition where these young troops are experiencing modern warfare, are experiencing the horrors of that instant death, this kind of guerrilla warfare, this hide, not just stand in a line and shoot, whereas these generals are experiencing... sitting in castles, drinking fine wine and partying every night and are not in the field of battle. And trying to do that more, too, because they enjoy doing that. I think the word that I was looking for earlier uh, when we were talking about it was pretentious, like incredibly pretentious, but it's this awareness that they are and they just have no shame at that point. They're just like, well, who gives a shit? You know, I like doing this, so I'm going to keep doing it. And that is what we're seeing within these French generals in this film. They have no shame and they are like, well, then you should be, you should like, you know, you should turn yourself into prison because I'm right and you're wrong. Like every single word that anyone says that is against their word is wrong. And it's crazy how the higher up the command you get, the more crap you can get away with, basically. Really, I think we should just kind of start at the ground level we see the troops fighting basically for mm-hmm. the first 30 minutes of the film and they're given this impossible order and they attempt to carry out this impossible order. 
What, what do you think about kind of what's going on in that first half hour of it? I think from the first half hour, I, I, I think I thought a lot about one, how, how gruesome, like the, the war scene actually is beautiful oh, watching wow. it yeah. happen. Like, you know, to tie in 1917 just a little bit before we compare the two films, like it really is this huge, huge wide shot with these wonderful like explosions coming up. Like the effects are just phenomenal. For 57, they're amazing. Yes, they're amazing with these explosions coming up from, you know, just like the, like, like the kind of the, the mortar fire. Yeah, exactly. The mortar fire and how they scheduled those to come up. It's beautiful. The smoke looks incredible. But then my emotions going through it is these men are not prepared at all. None of them look confident. None of them are capable. Most of the colonels are not capable. Our main character, Colonel Dax, which is Kirk Douglas's character, he is extremely capable. I'd say cap- I'd say he's extremely capable. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. He knows what he's doing, and he he knows that it is possible, but he knows it is not possible with this army. But he is still so determined within his role. Like he's with his whistle and his actions, and he's the first one to step up on oh, the mound yeah. and do the push. You know, he's the first one to get up he's there. He's a good general. That's what we get is he, yes, in the sea of all these crappy yes. generals, he's trying hard. So hard. He's a colonel, I believe. He is in mm-hmm. there commanding colonel. the troops. He's not just saying, go fight for me. You see him in no man's land fighting with them. He's getting a sense really, of the character. Because, like, he, I think what's interesting about his role, too, just to talk about Dax in, his, uh, in that character is... You know, we see him in such a clean setting, too, in his own space. You know, yeah. he's very good looking. You know, oh, it's Kirk Douglas. Strong. Yeah. yeah, it's Kirk Douglas. He's smoothing his hair back, you know. He's dressed well. He's very relaxed, very suave. But on the battlefield, he's literally, like, diving into these mud puddles. And he's almost unrecognizable, honestly. Truly un... I had seen stills of this film before I watched the movie and they oh, were caked with dirt. They were stills of Kirk Douglas caked in dirt. And bef- like, I did not know Kirk Douglas was in this movie until I started watching it. I was like, Oh, all those screenshots I saw that was Kirk Douglas. Like he really completely immerses himself within the setting of the movie. And that shows his character. So to kind of tie it back to what I thought of the war scene, it's all these incapable men with capable colonels because they know what they're set out to do. And, I mean, their lives are at stake. Their jobs are at stake. This is their, At this point, this is kind of the only thing they have to fight for. And on the topic of talking about those troops, as we kind of transition into the main focus of the movie being the generals, it's important to watch uh, General Miro. He's the general overseeing uh, Colonel Dax, Kirk Douglas. And it's interesting seeing him going into this trench with earlier in the movie, we are know that his job is at stake for this attack. If this attack succeeds, he will be promoted. If it fails, who knows? And it's interesting to watch him walk through this trench and almost berate these soldiers. He's giving them all the same questions, trying to test their mental state. And some of these soldiers just are not there. You can see they've been shell-shocked. They've been, they're fatigued from all this constant war. You know, and it's interesting to watch his ruthlessness and kind of the lack of humanity towards these just oftentimes kids, just these young adults fighting for him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like they have this like filter they're looking through that's so separate from, yeah, like you said, kids. 
Yeah. I think that that is a huge thing that I think about Old too. Old men versus kids. Kind yes. Of. Yes. These are like 56 year old men. Um, and I'm not, again, I'm not sure of like the technique, uh, obviously you could probably touch on this with like, as far as like a draft goes and like if these men have worked their way up over the years into this general point, or if they start off as kids or if they were simply just drafted as those generals, um, I'm not sure, but from what I collect, it is such a stark and bold difference between them because Dax is kind of Dax is for the kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and like in a way, like he's just like these men like did nothing wrong. They're here. They are accused of your fault. Basically. It's just like, you're putting what you did wrong on them and you're blaming them essentially. But there's just this like generational difference yeah. too, where they're just so tunnel vision and just so locked in to an idea that is just so bizarre to the audience because we obviously sympathize with the soldiers. Yeah. Right? We sympathize with the soldiers. Maybe a more traditional mindset would be like, well, it's their job. They have to carry out their duty, you know, because they're older. And yeah. we experience that right now in our day and age, too, with that. So I think that that is interesting early on that, like, we can relate to this film, like, from, like, kind of that genera- generational perspective. And it was made in 1957, yeah. which shows how much it's aged. That's a good point. Kind of tying and kind of leading off of that, tying that into World War One is a bridge between generations, colonialism versus the modern day. These generals, so you're so you're asking like, well, what do these generals come from? Mm-hmm. All these generals are rich kids. Wow, their parents were either nobility or their parents were in the military. And they were born in the military, born into nobility, and just went into the military because the money was there and they had the ability to. Mm-hmm. They were affluent, and that's where they landed. They A lot of them didn't have military skill. In the colonial days, they didn't care about that. They cared about how much money you had. In stark contrast to all these people in the French, German, British militaries, the actual people on the ground fighting were all just drafted, just plucked, just these are just random people. And that already shows you the massive shift in culture that goes on through this. So all of a sudden, you've got these guys who don't, they're milk drinkers. They're, they're, they're milk toast. So all of a sudden, you've got these wimpy old men who have known nothing but nobility through their lives, like you said, giving these orders, barking through this generational gap, Yep, essentially. And that kind of is what transitions us into the second part of the movie, Really, I'd say like the two second, two thirds yeah. of the movie, where the battle has happened, the really cool, really nice five minute long war scene has ended. Yeah, what happens now? What are the repercussions for what these generals have done? And that is this really painstakingly detailed military trial, essentially. Oh my gosh, the military trial scene, I think, is for sure the most uncomfortable scene but from just a like director perspective for Kubrick and what he was trying to achieve there a little bit of background Stanley Kubrick is known as one of the most nitpicky of uh, most frustrating directors to work with um dozens of takes i mean he will do 80 takes of just somebody lifting their hand and take a sip of water out of a really? cup oh. yeah he's that kind of guy the duck scene 
where they're eating the duck in the jail cell as their yeah. last meal. They shot that scene 63 times and had to cook a duck several different times. They what? had to serve a roasted duck several different times because he wanted them to eat a certain way. So going into this courtroom scene, they filmed it so many times and tensions are high and the generals are annoying as hell. Oh, and Dax gosh. is pissed off. All of those emotions are so true and raw because the legitimate actors were so frustrated. They were incredibly frustrated with, with how the other performances were. And it is a very like frustrating scene because everyone is acting so outlandish and they're you're like, but you're not seeing this perspective. And it's because they were all so pissed at each other because they did that scene hundreds of like at least a hundred times. It not to tangent too far, but it reminds me of 12 Angry Men. That same energy, all these people frustrated, both in acting in the scene and also in the the actual, what we, uh, as an audience, what we see in the movie, it all comes together very well. Um, to kind of lay the groundwork for what is going on, the three, essentially, the attack failed in order to kind of put pressure on the French soldiers these aloof generals decided, oh, yeah, it'll be great for morale if we just kill some guys, if we just kill some of them as example, which is so 19th century, unbelievably yeah. 19th century. And so these three men are picked out of the handful in multiple different ways and now have to have to somehow be represented in this military trial. And they're going up essentially what is a stone wall of these old, rich generals that just want the trial to be done and want these guys to be killed so they can go back and drink wine later that night. Yep, exactly. Yeah, they they just want to get it done with because what they think they're doing is a noble thing. Like, they think they're setting the standard for this incredible French army that has is not humble at all. No, sh like it has no, like it, at this point they should have a little bit of shame. Oh, I mean, it, they just, they want to kill guys just so they can get on with their way of life. Like that's how ridiculous this whole thing is. It's so, it, the whole plot is so ridiculous. It's frustrating, which really pulls you in the entire film because you're realizing how ridiculous it all sounds. It's just, I think a big thing for me during the film was, there's no way that they are actually going to execute these men. Because I hadn't known about the story. I wasn't familiar with it. So from my perspective, and without my knowledge of the French army, it was like, there's no way. It's a movie. They're not going to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They're lining up at the... Oh, my gosh. They're ready, aim, fire. They just they killed They died. Them. They died. And they legit... And then doing the research um, with the criterion... Uh, comes like a lot of really cool information so i got to learn about oh yeah that little short that we yeah there's yeah. with the criterion channel their paths of glory was on there and there was like seven bonus feature videos and with it came the story of the actual men that died under the hands of french generals because they were picked at random in a big lot four of them and over time i think a granddaughter of like one of those men recognized him was like whoa this happened to grandpa what the hell? Yeah, I think it was a wife. Or it was a wife a, or something. Wife wrote a book, and Stanley Kubrick found the story and mm -hmm. kind of uncovered it and brought it back up to the world. Right. So from like from just a movie perspective, it's outlandish and it's incredibly bold because this was a one million dollar budget film for 1957, which would in 2021 be about nine million dollars. When I looked up the information, okay. Um, 
inflation and all of that. So we'll say for time now, cost about $9 million for time now. Which is fat for back then still. Yeah, fat for back then. That's a very low budget movie though. Yeah. Like given that some movies cost $300 million to make now. And he went into the film not telling them that he was going to make it a sad ending. And it wasn't commercially successful at all. Oh, I thought it it wasn't. I thought it, it was. wasn't. It, the, it did very poorly in the box office, and for years, actually, it was banned in several countries. It was banned in France until the eighties, Italy until the eighties, and I believe Switzerland until the eighties because of how it represented those. And because I think of the allies within those um, yeah. armies as well. Um, so it's really interesting to see how well it's aged and. Honestly, the accuracy for them because those countries wouldn't even show it because they knew it was true. Yeah. And it was 40 years removed from the war. That kind of ties into in America here. We unfortunately don't care much about the war, but the war changed. The Great War changed Europe completely. Hmm. Europe was raised to the ground and rebuilt because of that war. And so after the events of the war, you see these countries banning it because those systems, those those systems of nobility are still in place and are still offended by the fact that Kubrick very accurately kind of poked the bear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did at a, such a young age. At such a young age. And so we find during the movie, earlier in the movie, we realize that General Miro orders his artillery to fire upon his own men to get them out of the trench and get them going. Of course, General Dax, Colonel Dax, he knows what he's doing. He brings us up to the big head general of everybody in an attempt to save his men, Mm -hmm. in an attempt to make sure these guys aren't executed because he really cares about these men on the battlefield. And to just kind of round off the cruelty and the absolute aloof nature of these generals, this general, while knowing that General Miro has acted unhonorably, still kills these men, still lets them die. And then after they are executed, cans General Miro. Yes. is like, okay, well, now I know what was going on. I'm still going to kill these guys. Their lives don't matter to me. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And he, and it's, that's such a weird point in the film because it's like almost comedic where he's just like talking about it. Like you did a commendable thing. Like, like four was a good number to choose. I know you wanted to kill a hundred of them. Like he was saying like a hundred yeah. men from each one. Right. And it's just like, you, I'm glad you settled with four, which is barbaric. Oh, absolutely. But he was just like, yeah, well, it's a shame that you ordered an attack on your own troops. And he was just like, who told you that? You know, and immediately he's just like, oh, well, you, you did. So we'll leave it to the, uh, what did he say, the inquiry? Is oh, that what he said? Essentially, they were going to have, we just endured like a 30-minute, really intense, sweaty military trial. And then it's implied that we're going to get another, another military one. trial yeah. just to... Just to indict Miro. Paths of Glory 2. Yeah. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo, baby. Um, and that's that, the same way 1917 was cyclical, this is cyclical. Mm-hmm. Trial after trial after just. If anything, that is worse. Like, like yeah. for the movie, okay, for the movie, uh, like for the sake of the movie, I feel like the trial scene is far more painful than the actual execution because you're sitting through anticipating oh it happening when it happens yeah there's emotional points and there's like a lot of like regret from some of the generals who accused uh some of their men 
Um, and you know, there's one guy who suffered head trauma the night before oh and my they gosh. just set him up on a gurney and he, they have to pinch his cheek awake right before he gets shot just so he can be conscious during like their like, pain and feel pain, you know, while that's hard hitting, it's kind of even worse to see the absolute naive actions and mindset that these generals are producing through the uh, courtroom scene. Yeah. Like it's more painful because you know that their opinion matters more because of their uh, hierarchy, because of their wealth. And they're, these poor men are just nothing compared to them. Like they make them look like dirt even more than the execution scene. It's interesting to see the essentially how I feel is we get the convergence, the first half, the first third of the movie, troops, second, third, generals. Mm -hmm. And then the third is this interesting conversion of the two where we see the scene where all of the prisoners are either taking their vows, uh, the, the, the priest is praying over them, they're having their last meal, and then cut to the generals having a literal party the night before they're going to be executed. Like, Kirk Douglas crashes that party just to tell the head general, hey, General Miro fired on his own men. And the general goes back to his party and tells the guy to fuck off. Like, and then we get these two convergences at the execution scene. It's crazy. We haven't seen these generals and these troops in the same spot. And all of a sudden, here they are in the same shot. And it's interesting that the that shot is less intense because I imagine after all that time, those prisoners have had the most intense 24 hours of their life. Most of them are ready to go. One of them has head trauma and isn't really alive. The other is in a panic attack and is praying to God for the last six hours. The other one's just ready to die. And it just ends. No drama, just firing squad. And then the generals are super happy with it. Yeah. And then they go eat dinner. Like they, they like, literally go eat dinner. Yeah. It's screwed up. Yeah. That's summed up. That's World War One. is these really rich nobility types from the 19th century dancing on the graves and corpses of men that are of the 20th century. Kind of this disparate kind of separation between two cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a complete excluding of one generation and what they think is uplifting that generation but really they're tearing them down and they're not supporting them in a way that brings them up higher it's a complete it's like a blindness that they have it's this military blindness and a chip that is on your shoulder that can never be removed well moving on from that it's interesting to see the differences between world war one and then world war two is unbelievably different nice well uh yeah Tune in next week. Webb's back with uh, the World, World War, War II, II baby. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Never seen that movie. Actually. Me neither. I mean, I've heard it's great. So really, in a nutshell, we've got these two movies that highlight the cyclical nature that we see World War One as, but in different ways. We've got 1917 bringing the gritty trench warfare, the the soldier side of it, very visceral, very physical. And we've got the generals of passive glory, the very boring, the very court martial, sitting through these long hearings, sweating your ass off in a courtroom 
kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I think both films kind of feel pretty similar within like the trench aspect of it with the big kind of droning shots through the trenches and the examples of showing, you know, the loss of life in the trenches and the examples of when you notice someone's going to go for a push in the trenches. I think they both tend to carry that on uh, pretty similarly. I'd agree. I think they both hit the nail on the head in terms of showing us what that part of the war is. Right. I'd agree. And then when we look at it from a general perspective, we have one movie kind of showing us more of the soldier than the general and showing us like we just know of the generals just from of talk, just we get of a, word of mouth. We get a little bit of the squabble in 1917. We see it a little bit, but then we see Passive Glory, and it's like, oh my god, these we guys see are their assholes. inner thoughts. We yeah. see we see their true intentions, their true dark, sinister um, the motivations, the selfishness. Really, the selfishness the, we we see their past in a way too, without them having to explain it, which is such an incredible way Kubrick chooses to represent them is when you're able to see a character and their past and they don't have to explain it to you, you yes, are doing it correctly. And that you is are true. doing it in a way that provokes conversation, that provokes deeper thinking within film. And for Kubrick to do that without having a general to say, well, I was, you know, my father did this for me when I was little, blah, 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 when I was a boy. But just in his tone and his rhythm of voice you know Mm -hmm. that Kubrick can share that I think that to me is a great aspect of Paths of Glory compared to 1917 that 1917 doesn't have not that it needs it but it stands out greatly you know and in a way it's like what if 1917 did that you know what I mean I was gonna say just to kind of round it all up to put a, a a a a subjective spin on it, I do think Paths of Glory is the better movie. As somebody who, I did love 1917, very well polished, very well done movie, but Paths of Glory just has that timelessness that just hits really hard. I I don't really know how to describe it, but the way Kubrick did it, not even by the meticulousness of his direction, but the story and the way he got them to act, it it just hit a little harder, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, between the two films, I will have to give Paths of Glory as the one that I enjoyed the most. And to me, it's the... It's the better movie. It's the better movie. 1917 is great. It's very good. As I, I, th- I just think within this realm, within World War One, and all of the really wonderful and fascinating intricacies within how confusing of a war it was and how little it's talked about it's way more impressive when people absolutely nail it and you can and kubrick nails it and has the emotion without having it be too personal you know what i mean too emotionally personal because with mendez you have this emotionally personal story that kind of sounds like a story that he heard from his grandfather around the fire while kubrick is like i researched this story that i had a Mm, personal attachment to I did not hear about in like a heartfelt sense from a relative that was affiliated with it, but I felt a longing to tell this story for what it needed to be from my perspective. And that to me goes a very long way within Pads of Glory and just kind of puts it over 1917. Definitely don't want to slam 1917. You did a great job, Sam Mendez. Um, You ain't no Kubrick. 
I'm sorry. I you was, ain't no Kubrick. I was about to say, though, we should not knock 1917 because it is still like one of the better yes. films of the last like five years. But it's Stanley freaking Kubrick. Yeah, you, you can't go up against a titan of the industry. Like a that. literal titan. Like he is argued as the greatest director of all time. There are strong, strong, strong video essays. No, Grant, I haven't, I, I, I can't go there because so to, I haven't seen it. To but. weigh it out like that, Kubrick made the all time classic, but also. Sam Mendes made a movie that made a crap ton of money and yeah. was true to the source material and honestly true to the general culture of it while making a bunch of money. And not so, just made, yeah, and not, yeah, like you said, not just made a bunch of money, but was able to make a well done movie that was financially successful. For its time, um, each film did an incredible job and will stand as one of the best movies of that year and also decade, and also just genre, because these two movies will go down, uh, honestly, and I could honestly say, like, Paths of Glory is the number one greatest World War One movie, and maybe 1917 is the number two, because there's not a lot. I was about to say, that's not a big category. There should be more. Let us let let's be, let this be true. I would love to see more of these movies. Yes. Really cool subject matter. It is really cool that we're able to praise these movies and have it be such a small genre, um, and, like, be excited that there is hopefully going to be more movies made in the genre. Hopefully, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Webb, my dear brother, for coming in and discussing uh, war stuff, two incredible movies. I mean, a bunch of, we just talked about a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to do this. Excited for uh, the World War II episode. So we'll have to sit down and uh, think about what we want to do for that because that. That does sound very, very fun. People will yell at us if we don't do Saving Private Ryan. Right. They will They will probably be pretty mad, but I kind of want them to yell at us, so maybe we don't but do But also, Saving we've Private never Ryan. seen Saving Private Ryan. Are, yeah. are we maybe normies for not watching that? Maybe. Maybe we are. Well, are we normies? Do you want us to watch Saving Private Ryan? What movies should we watch next? If you want to go ahead and let us know at our various social medias, you can go ahead and find us on Twitter and Instagram at DEFilmPod. There we'll be posting updates on current episodes. We'll be doing polls, interacting with fans. Go ahead and give us suggestions. You can yell at me if I was wrong. Please don't yell at me. <laughs> Please don't yell at Webb. He did nothing wrong. He's just a guest. He's my brother, for God's sake. I'm Bear Boswell. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. You can support us by subscribing to us on your chosen podcast player. We put this podcast out for free every two weeks. So if you want to give back, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Five stars is great. If you want to suggest a film, a topic, or just express your thoughts, you can get in touch with our Twitter at DEFilmPod or get in touch via email at DEFilmPod at gmail.com.